And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. The question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's easily the most important question any person can ask. It's much more important than who am I going to marry? It's much more important than what career am I going to pursue? You see, life is so uncertain that a person could be in the grave before he marries or begins a career. So the matter of where he spends eternity is the crucial issue to settle before all others. If you've got that locked in, okay, uh, that should be a huge weight off of your chest. Matter of fact, how many remember, this is a feeling I had when I prayed to receive Christ many years ago, was literally just a weight coming off of my chest. I was a nine-year-old boy. It's not like I'd murdered anybody, but I knew I was a sinner. And when God took that sin, now, sometimes I still feel weighty with sin. So I have to go back to the Lord, right? But, man, there's something about knowing that you are going to spend eternity in heaven. Well, a man well-versed in the study of Jewish law, he asked this question of Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, Now, it's possible to ask the right question, but with the wrong motives. And that's what this lawyer did. He knew the answer to the question in his head, but his heart was not right before God. He wasn't open to the fact that he actually needed eternal life for himself. He knew the law far better than the average Jew. Uh, He kept the law, or so he thought. Uh, He was no pagan. He wasn't a Samaritan. He was asking the question about eternal life really to test Jesus. Perhaps he wanted to trip him up or to demonstrate his own superior knowledge there in front of that crowd. But Jesus turns the question back on the lawyer. And then when Jesus sees that the man is trying to justify himself, he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan to show the man, the lawyer, what God's law really demands. So in this context, the familiar parable deals with the questions, can we be saved by our good works? If so, how many good works does it take? And if not, what is the relationship between salvation and good works? Now, scripturally, We know that we cannot be saved by good works. But those who are saved will produce and practice good works. So first, we cannot be saved by good works. This is verses 25 through 29. The lawyer no doubt thought that he already had eternal life because he was a member of the covenant race. He was a Jew. And not only that, he had devoted himself to the study of the Jewish law. And he was diligent to keep it. He never missed a Jewish feast or festival or even a sacrifice. He observed the traditions of the Jewish religion. He was careful to avoid any type of ceremonial defilement. He tithed not only his money, but also his table spices. He kept the the, the, uh, Sabbath fastidiously. He thought that he had all of his bases covered. He thought that eternal life came by uh, keeping the law of Moses and that he was qualified on that basis. He was just asking the question about eternal life to put this young upstart rabbi through the paces. Now notice how Jesus responded. He directed the lawyer back to the law of Moses, verse 26. 
Well, this shows us, A, that the Bible is the only authority on how to obtain eternal life. Jesus didn't say to the lawyer, what do the scribes and Pharisees say? He didn't ask, what is the tradition of the Jewish fathers? He didn't say, well, that's an interesting question. What do you think? What's your opinion? Rather, Jesus directed the man back to the written word of God. What is written in the law and how do you read it? You see, the Bible and the Bible alone is our sole authority in matters of faith and practice. Now, this may sound basic to you, and it is, but you know what? It's under constant attack. So, we, we have to hold firmly to it. It's one of the central issues of the Reformation. You remember sola scriptura, scripture alone. It's a crucial dividing line between evangelical Protestant churches and the Roman Catholic Church. The Catholic Church links tradition, scripture, and the teaching authority of the church as showing the way of salvation. Now, we dare not elevate creeds and councils to the same level as the Bible because, in effect, this is to put them over the Bible. Scripture alone is our authority. Now, this crucial doctrine is also under attack to a degree uh, in the charismatic mu movement where people put some supposed word from God uh, on the same level that they have received, on the same level as the Bible. Some go as, uh, so far as to put their experience above Scripture rather than using Scripture to test their experience. If we move away from Scripture as our sole authority, our only authority, then we are adrift on a sea of subjectivity where we can end up saying many things that contradict what the Bible teaches. So, what does Scripture say on this crucial question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, that's B. The Bible reveals that if we love God totally and love our neighbors selflessly, we will inherit eternal life. Now, the lawyer quotes the two great commandments that we must love the Lord our God with our total being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus commends the answer that the lawyer gives. He says, you have answered correctly. All right? You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, notice that Jesus did not say God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He didn't say, you can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Just believe in me and you will have eternal life. Why did Jesus answer the way that he did? Maybe he needed some training on how to share his faith. Maybe we need a little bit of instruction, um, you know, from our Lord on how to share our faith. I think that Jesus was using the law as God intended, as a tutor that's what Galatians tells us. It's a tutor that brings this man to Christ so that he might be justified by faith. The law simply points out our need of a Savior. Well, the lawyer vainly thought that he was keeping the law. The question, who is my neighbor? That's merely an attempt to justify himself. We see that in verse 29. But Jesus' parable about the Good Samaritan, it showed him that he wasn't even close to fulfilling the second half, loving your neighbor as yourself, much less the first half, loving God. The holy standard of God's law requires absolute perfection. 
That's something we're not familiar, very familiar with. <laughs> Absolute perfection. How many ever, we messed with a computer this morning. By the way, I want to thank Drew. He was up here early trying to get us going. We are going. We're live streaming over on the big screen with nice sound and everything. Uh, and and uh, I'm just going to, I won't turn it around like I did this week. But when I was sitting in that back pew, every open pew had people in it. Last week, we had a bunch of empty pews. Just saying. Anyway, it's going full blast over there. I just want to thank Drew. But we had problems with that computers. The ones and the zeros weren't matching like they were supposed to. Uh, have, have you noticed how much of life is that way? It doesn't go exactly like we desire, like we designed things happen. Well, uh, like I said, it, the, God's law requires absolute perfection. We're not, we're, we're not familiar with that concept. Uh, Jesus showed us in the Sermon on the Mount that it, it, it demands not only that we outwardly not murder anybody, our brother, but that we not even wrongly be angry with him in our hearts. It requires not only that we not commit adultery, but that we be pure in our thought life. He sums up that whole section about the law saying, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You want a standard to go for? There you go. You think you haven't sinned? Think again. Paul and James both point out that if you fail to keep even one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. When it comes to loving God with our total being, we can't even begin to love a God that we don't know. Do you remember what Jesus said last week? No one knows the Father, who the Father is, except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. If this lawyer had evaluated his life correctly by the standard of God, uh, he would have seen immediately just how f um, far he fell short. He would have fallen down before Jesus and pled, how can I know God? How can I love God as I ought? And Jesus probably would have replied something like, repent from your self-righteousness and believe in me. Those who hear my voice and follow me have eternal life. Now, Paul talks about this in Galatians. He says, now that no one is justified by the law before God, it is evident. In other words, no one keeps the law and that's evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices, it, practices them, the law, shall live by them. Now listen to this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order... Here's why he bore the curse on the cross. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham. Remember the blessing so many, oh, this is 4,000 years ago now. That was given to Abraham. That it was to be by faith. I think my, bat my battery dying. Okay. Uh, where was I at? So that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promise of the Spirit by faith in God, not by law, not by works, but by faith. So God's holy law convicts us all of falling short. And it should make us realize that we cannot save ourselves no matter how hard we try. 
Now Jesus' method with this self-righteous lawyer, it teaches us that we should not be too quick to tell people the good news before they see their self-righteousness and that they are both guilty of breaking God's law and incapable of keeping it. Not only have you broken it, you can't keep it. When you see the impossibly high standard of God's law, you can go one of two ways. You're going to choose one or the other. The right way is to let that law drive you to Christ who bore your sins on the cross. He alone perfectly loved God and perfectly loved his neighbor. We need his righteousness as our covering or we could never stand before the holy God. As Paul makes clear, God grants that righteous standing as a gracious gift to the one who trusts in him. Now that's, that's the right way. Okay, when you're condemned by the law, run to Christ. He's the only answer. The second way, the wrong way, is, is, to, is to try to bring down the standard of the law to a level that you think you can keep. So that then you can justify yourself by your own good works. You know all of religion, except Christianity, all of religion is built on that. What can you do to get back to God? There's not a person in the world that doesn't recognize they're separated from God. Romans 1 is quite clear about this. And what do we do? We try to do things to get back to God. That's religion. What is Christianity? We rely on what Christ has already done for us. Big, big difference. So, the lawyer, he took the second route. And so, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan to show him that he fell short. It showed him the kind of good deeds that the Holy Spirit will produce in the lives of those who come to him in faith. So that's the second major point here. Those who are saved will practice good works. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. When God saves us by his grace, he doesn't throw out the standard of his holy law. Rather, as Paul puts it, the requirements of the law is fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. That's Romans 8, 4. Spurgeon put it this way, what the law demands of us, the gospel really produces in us. So the parable of the Good Samaritan shows us a, a practical example of what it means to love our neighbor as in, with, as in fact we do love ourselves. Now the Samaritan practiced what we call the golden rule, right? Treating this man as, 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 as he would want to be treated. Now specifically, Jesus is responding to the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor? And he's showing him that our neighbor is any human being with a legitimate need that we can help. It's that simple. John, in his first epistle, he, 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 he pointedly comments, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us love with word or with tongue, not with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, no one can be saved by such good deeds, but those who are saved should be practicing such deeds to the glory of God. Now, there's far more in this parable than I have time to capture here in the next few minutes, but I just want to bring out three points. A, love varies in its expression depending on the particular need. 
The Samaritan didn't go up to this uh, wounded traveler and say, let me give you this gospel track. Now, if the Samaritan were a believer, then that may have been something good to do later down the road. But the man was half dead. Obviously, the loving thing to do was first to bind up the man's wounds and get him to a place where he could recover. Now, once his immediate physical needs were met, the man might be open to hearing about his spiritual needs. Many years ago, Amy Carmichael went to India where in the name of Jesus, she took many homeless and unwanted children uh, into her home. And one prospective donor made it clear that his money was to be, would, would be to go to evangelistic efforts, not buildings. Amy sighed. Well, as for buildings, souls, in India at least, are more or less securely fastened to bodies. Bodies can't be left to lie about in the open. And as you can't get the souls out and deal with them separately, you have to take them both together. She got her buildings. The Samaritan saw that this man was badly wounded and he demonstrated his love by helping the man where he had a need. Now the man wasn't a, a lazy professional beggar who refused to work for a living. We've got plenty of those. He wasn't, trying, he wasn't lying on the side of the road because he had gotten drunk or had squandered all his money on pleasure. The Bible actually mocks the fool who wastes his money or who doesn't work and then is in need. We aren't necessarily uh, loving such a man by giving him what we might call a handout. The Samaritan, by the way, didn't give the, the man a lecture about, hey, you need to be careful next time so this doesn't happen to you again. No, he was a victim. And the loving thing to do was to generously meet his need. The point is, love has to be discerning. Jesus loved this lawyer by telling him this parable to convict the lawyer of his self-righteousness. Now, love isn't always nice in syrupy. I took a picture. I, I wish I had it. I'd show it right now. I came in a while ago. This is before the service. They're, they're blushing over here. Lincoln was at the piano and playing something softly. And here was, here was Ruby. That love was syrupy. So I took a picture. It was great. I'll show it to you later if you want to see it. It was, it was good. But love is not always like that. Sometimes love confronts a person's sin. At other times, love quietly moves into action, as this Samaritan did. Well, B, love overcomes excuses and takes action. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us what the priest and the Levite were thinking when they passed by on the other side of the road, but uh, no doubt they both had reasons why they didn't stop and help. Maybe they feared being mugged by the same band of robbers who had hurt this man. Uh, maybe they were simply in a hurry. They had promised their families they'd be home in a certain time and they just couldn't spare the time to stop and help. Perhaps they didn't want to become ceremonially defiled. Besides, surely someone else would stop and take care of this man. So as they scurried by, they sent up a quick prayer for the man simply to ease their conscience and they kept moving. Now, I'm not saying that we should throw caution to the wind and be stupid about helping the needy. No, uh, it'd probably be foolish for a woman today to stop and pick up a hitchhiker or even to help a man and give him a ride if his car's broken down. We just don't take those type of chances. Sometimes there are legitimate reasons why we cannot render aid to someone in need. I also know that our world is very different than the world of Jesus' day. 
Back then, the only needs that they knew about were those that they personally encountered. They didn't have TV, radio, internet. Um, today, we know about hurricane, flood, earthquake, famine victims from around the world. It's easy to throw up our hands and say, I could give away every dime that I have and not even make a dent on all of this. And so you, just, you say, why bother? And I don't pretend to have answers to these difficult matters, but if we personally encounter a needy person, or if we hear about needy people in another country and the Lord burdens our hearts, we need to respond when we are able. Now, what happened this last week that is a good example of this? The fire. Right, the Blaisdells? Amuna was the first to call me. She goes, Dave, I need prayer. I've had to come back into my house. The house behind me is literally burning down. And so we talked and I prayed. She says, okay, I'm going to go back out. Next thing you know, I heard from Lindsay. Next thing you know, I hear from Travis. There's four children. The two oldest girls are involved in our student ministry on Wednesday nights. They're here almost every Wednesday night when we're, when we're going. So, I just, we simply put out a message on uh, what was a quick cast, I think, and just let folks know. The next thing you know, we were looking for food cards and for uh, Walmart stuff. They didn't have anything. No toiletries. The clothes they were wearing, uh, that, that's it. A couple of them didn't even have shoes. They left the house barefooted and didn't have shoes. Well, the next, over the next few days, I'm not sure what the, is Sandy, is Sandy in here? Any idea? Oh, yeah, Sherry would know. Yes, yeah, this is significant. We heard of a particular need, an acute need, and you guys responded. And, and that need's going to be there for a while. So don't just throw $25 their way and say, okay, I've done my part. That's like, that's like these guys walking around and throwing up a prayer and saying, God help them. Right? This is going to be an on ongoing need. But we respond because we know of the need. Well, like I said, it's easy to shrug off all responsibility with plausible excuses. But love overcomes the excuses and moves into compassionate action. Well, third C, love is always costly. Huh. The Samaritan spent time, money, and a good deal of effort to help this needy man. He probably tore up some of his own clothes in order to bandage the man's wounds. He walked to the inn while the man rode on his donkey. He gave the, inn, the innkeeper two days wages and told him that he would pay for any further charges. He was greatly inconvenienced by this whole episode, but he gave generously of his time and money without complaint. The Samaritan also had to overcome some racial prejudice to help this man, who, who was no doubt Jewish, the Samaritans and the Jews, they had a centuries-long, probably more like, yeah, a centuries-long uh, uh, hatred for one another. Jesus shocked the lawyer by using a Samaritan as the hero of the story. Matter of fact, at the end of the story, the lawyer can't even bring himself. Jesus says, which one do you think was the neighbor? He doesn't say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy. He can't even say the word Samaritan. But I'm sure that the wounded Jewish traveler wasn't prejudiced at this point. It's, it's, it's easy to lose your prejudice when you're half dead. And that's how Scripture described him. 
Now the Samaritan easily could have thought, let the Jews take care of him. He's not one of my people. But he saw him as a fellow human being, not as a man of a different race. Now all racial prejudice stems from pride. We are judging ourselves to be better than others because of factors that we are not in control of. Namely, our genetic and cultural heritage. Did you even choose your sex? No. Did you choose your parents? No. Did you choose where you're going to be born? No. Right? You had nothing to do with that. Love lays aside such prejudice and pride and it shows compassion simply because the other person is a needy human being made in the image of God. We also had an example of the opposite of this this week, didn't we? On Monday, uh, George Floyd, all right? I'm not going to make a comment about the officer. I have no idea. I don't know the man. I don't know his history. I don't know anything about him. I can think of several reasons why he did what he did. All of them were in part wrong. What he was ignoring was the need of the man. And it, if you look at the video, it wasn't because he was fearful. But he ignored the pleas of the man. And the man ended up dying. Scripturally, that police officer and maybe the three standing there with him were not being good neighbors. All right? Anyway, a little boy came home from Sunday school one day. And he had learned all about the Good Samaritan and he told his mother the story in great detail. He had all the facts straight and, and all the people in their right character roles. And, and then the mother asked, what is the story meant to teach us? And the little boy replied, it means that we were, when we are in trouble, others should come help us. Well, not quite. The story is here to show us that we can't possibly be saved by our good works because we could never fulfill the perfect demands of God's holy law. Now, while it's not the point of the parable, parable we can't help but recognize that what the Good Samaritan did for this half-dead traveler, Jesus Christ has done for us. He found us mortally wounded by sin. Men couldn't help us. Religion couldn't help us. We can't help ourselves. A relationship with God begins when you see that your own goodness falls far short of God's law. You need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. He showed compassion towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. The parable of the Good Samaritan also shows us that if we have responded to God, to his grace through Jesus Christ, then we are obligated to show the love of Christ in practical ways to those who are in need. As Jesus concludes, go and do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness.
Thank you that in your wisdom, Jesus gave this, this story of the Good Samaritan and shows us how we should be ready to respond. Yes, loving others is inconvenient, it's costly, but it is the right thing to do. Uh, Father, that's putting others before ourselves and helping to meet their needs. So God, I pray that you would just uh, tender our hearts for that so that when we see a need, we go, yep, this is a good Samaritan type of thing. Uh, God, what exactly do you want me to do? How can I be of help? So God, help us to not be like the priest and the Levite who simply uh, toss a dollar their way and then walk around them but don't really, don't really help. God, help us to have hearts like yours that would act like you would. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, it comes back, the whole gospel comes back to are you trying to justify yourself or, are you be, or have you been justified freely through faith, uh, by grace, through faith? That's the question this morning. If you're counting on your good works as your means of going to heaven, you are going to be sorely disappointed one day. Uh, you know, I, I suppose much, much, much of the world views salvation is as, well, I've done more good than bad. And that, 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 very, may, that very well may be true. Maybe you have done more good than bad. But Scripture is quite clear. God's, God demands perfect righteousness. There's only been one perfectly righteous, and that's Jesus Christ. That's where you find salvation. So you need to throw away all of your self-help, self-effort at salvation. It's going to get you nowhere. You come empty-handed, recognizing that, and you come to Jesus and say, take me, forgive me. Holy Spirit, take over. Rule my life. Not only Savior, but Lord. And you know that's what true salvation is about. It's not just a fire ticket to get you out of hell. No, you're going to be used of God by the Holy Spirit as you make Jesus Lord. That's part of the call. So I hope that you know where you're at on this spectrum of, oh, I don't know, I, you know, I, I know I'm not a sinner. I mean, I know I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a believer. I know I'm not you know, connect with God to, yeah, I think I've done pretty good. I'm doing okay. I think when I stand before him, I'll be fine. Boy, you, that's very tenuous. <laughs> I think I'll be fine. To stand in and saying, yes, I have trusted Jesus Christ for my eternal life. I don't look to myself. I look to his righteousness. I look to the price that he paid on the cross. I hope that's you this morning. And if it is, that's what we need to tell others. Right? That... That is the way to salvation. That is the way to eternal life. Great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.